Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. And we got plenty to talk about. Plenty to talk about today. And I want to begin with a brief discussion of our friend, President Joe Biden, Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe Biden, who is losing everywhere, left and right, his entire agenda has been defeated, either in Congress or out of Congress with its voter unpopularity. What is it? I just saw a Quinnipiac poll this week, the last couple of days. It's kind of a liberal poll. Put him at 33% approval rating. Most other polls have him in the high 30s or the low 40s. His economic numbers are in the 30s. He's lost his advantages on COVID, foreign policy. People no longer regard him as honest. They've lost their confidence. You know, I sort of always go back to what my pal, um, one of my Trump pals, Steve Miller, said on the Kudlow show on Fox Business News a couple of weeks ago. And that is, it's uh, Biden's the greatest uh, bait and switch in the history of American politics. That is to say, the bait was, elect me, I'm a moderate. The switch was, whoops, going to govern as a far-left radical socialist, in effect, with his program of big government socialists. And, of course, the country's not buying it. It's a center-right country. Always has been. It's a freedom and democracy country. It's a free enterprise country. It's not a government-run economy. And I might add... I might add it's a civil country. What do I mean by civil? It's a country that enjoys friendship, companionship, families, communities. People talk to each other, agree and disagree without insults or poisonous vitriol. And of course, we we can agree, we can disagree. Nowadays, you can't agree. You can't disagree. You get blasted by these far-left crazy people either on social media or someplace else, TV, CNN, MSNBC, Lord knows. Such a pleasure for me to be on Fox, to be honest with you. Such a pleasure to be on WABC Radio, renovated by my great friend John Katsimatidis. Anyway, the point I'm making is Biden has so badly misjudged the American people and the American electorate, his presidency right now is hanging by a thread. His agenda has been completely defeated. Part of this is, of course, his own making, the catastrophe of the withdrawal of Afghanistan, which has led directly to the threat of war now 
uh, between Russia and the Ukraine. We will be discussing this as the show moves on with Congressman Lee Zeldin and former National Security Advisor Andrew uh, Peek. We will talk about this tremendous threat going on with Russia and the Ukraine. What exactly is Biden's going to give up? But the rest of the agenda, I mean, look, the COVID agenda has turned out to be a disaster. The Build Back Better agenda has been a complete disaster. Americans don't want another $5 trillion of spending, which would increase the 7% inflation rate even higher, which I fear may be already baked in the cake because the Federal Reserve has enabled and coddled all this government spending. So we have a tremendous inflation threat. The White House is in complete denial about it. But it's uh, public enemy number one. The catastrophe down at the southern border by overturning Donald Trump's uh, remain in Mexico, his catch and deport, his wall. That has led to something like 2 million illegals entering the country. Nobody knows where they are because it's catch and release instead of catch and deport. And it's posed a tremendous threat, a drug threat, a sex trafficking threat, a criminal threat, and just an illegal threat. Americans don't like blatant illegality. The attacks against the police. I mean, one of the points you're going to raise during the course of this show is this incredible story here in New York City. The district attorney of Manhattan, his name is Bragg, Alvin Bragg, I think his name is. This guy uh, is for no bail and no jail. No bail, no jail running completely opposite to what uh, our new mayor, Eric Adams, is trying to achieve. But Democrats, uh, I hate to generalize because I don't mean all Democrats, but it just seems like big city Democratic mayors and leaders don't want to pursue crime. Now, the defund the police and the riots... The riots of 2020, the riots of 2021. Coddling is perhaps a good word. We coddled inflation. We're coddling criminals. What's the chart? There's something like 15 cities across the country, large cities, by the way, run by Democratic mayors who have experienced record homicide rates. Last night on Cudlow, the Fox Business Show Cudlow, uh, we were talking to uh, Pam Bondi and Roma Duravi about this. Pam Bondi explained, here in New York City, there's a 55% increase in carjackings. And what Pam Bondi told us, she's a former attorney general of the state of Florida, the free state of Florida, is that, you know, a carjacking doesn't just mean your car is lost or stolen. It means you're in the car. You're pulled out of the car, often at gunpoint, and then somebody takes the car away. So it is very close to essentially a violent crime. I assume I assume D.A. Bragg would, would have no bail and no jail for that too. But these are the kinds of things that have plagued Joe Biden because he himself, although he opposed 
closing down police departments, and he did oppose defunding, he has nevertheless taken the side of rioters and looters throughout his first year of presidency. He would rather attack big box retailers than he would the people who go in and rob them, so-called smash-and-grab looting. And that is another nail in his coffin. That is another reason why people, not only do they oppose him politically, but they have completely lost confidence in him. Save America, kill the bill, which has been our mantra for many, many, many months. I believe we are succeeding and will succeed. I think Build Back Better is dead. But look at what's in that thing. And you understand why Biden is so unpopular. Scored accurately by the nonpartisan government group, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, and the Joint Tax Committee. Scored accurately without one-year gimmicks. It's a $5 trillion additional spending bill, which we do not need. The $2 trillion spending bill last winter was unnecessary. It spawned inflation. If this thing ever went through, it would worsen the inflation substantially. And by the way, and we'll pursue this later in the show, the fight against inflation, which will be waged primarily by the Federal Reserve, our central bank, which means they're going to have to take money out of these systems, They have to reduce the money supply, shrink their balance sheet, and raise interest rates. They'll probably be forced to do it faster and more aggressively than even they realize. But that will probably not end happily. We saw some pretty lousy economic numbers this past week. More about that later. But the point I'm making is when you have a large inflation and then you try to stop it, it usually leads to a recession. Not right now, not this month, not this quarter, probably not this year. But in 2023 and 2024, you can expect a substantial economic slump because the Fed's going to have to be pulling back on the money supply, putting on the monetary breaks. That stems from the overspending which the Bidens promoted last winter, a year ago roughly, and would, if they had their way, enforce or implement again. Thank goodness for Joe Manchin. You've heard me praise him many, many times. Thank goodness. His whole argument has been inflation is high and we don't need to spend any more money. His voters in West Virginia have doubled his popularity. Guy's running about 60% popularity. Roughly 70% of the West Virginia voters oppose Build Back Better, which Newt Gingrich, who will be on the show at the half hour, correctly called big government socialism. This is part of the Biden plan. This is why it's so unpopular. America rejects big government socialism. The attack on fossil fuels, oil, gas, coal, has led to a shortage of energy and a large increase in its price and cost. So gasoline at the pump is running about 
whatever it's running, 325, 335. It's going to go up again because you've had a tremendous rally in the world price of oil. Some of that is a function now of the threat of Russia invading Ukraine and the debate over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But this occurred before. As Biden rejected the XL pipeline, stopped the drilling in Anwar, increased fees on uh, oil and drilling, oil and gas fracking and drilling on public lands, increased the fees, stopped the pipelines, stopped the Alaska project, putting a wet blanket, throwing a wet blanket over the entire industry. And so we are no longer energy independent. Once again, we are importing oil, for example, and gas from Russia. That's correct in the Northeast. Motorists are furious. Home heating fuel bills going up. And, of course, it's a cold winter. And then we go begging to Saudi Arabia and Russia. They should produce more oil. Really? They should produce more gas. Not us. They. Well, what's the logic? I don't think anybody understood it. From, from day one, I mean, this has been a policy ridicule. We are the world's energy leader. That was one of Donald Trump's legacies, our fracking and horizontal drilling. We were doing 13 million barrels per day at the peak in uh, late 19 and early 2020. We're still hovering at pandemic levels of 11 million barrels a day. Why? Because the big oil companies and gas companies don't want to make the investments necessary, don't want to turn on the pumps, don't want to go back to drilling and producing because they're going to be taxed and regulated to death by something called the Green New Deal, which is a preposterous notion that we could somehow, in five or ten years, end fossil fuels. Preposterous notion. Eighty percent of our power comes from fossil fuels. And the Greenies don't like nuclear, which is the ultimate renewable fuel. They have no plan for the transition. Just a lot of gas lighting, gas bagging rhetoric, existential threats and whatnot. We are paying the price in terms of energy, in terms of our economy, and in terms of our foreign policy. This is another failure. Biden wants to reverse or end the Trump tax cuts, which were fabulously successful. Biden continuously lies about the Trump tax cuts, saying it only helped rich people and fat cats and large corporations, which is utterly not true. Factually, factually, as every study has shown, including government studies from the Joint Tax Committee and the Congressional Budget Office and so forth and so on. Factually, the biggest winners from the Trump tax cuts was the blue-collar middle class and then the lower middle class incomes and then the very bottom income earners. Their increases in income and wealth were two and three times larger than the top 1% or 5% or 10%. And yet, Biden continues to lie. Now, he lies about a lot of things. 
When he first came into office, I avoided the word lie. I don't like to call presidents liars. I don't like it one bit. My respect for the presidency and the office of the presidency is so great, I would sort of couch it as a fib or cognitive dissonance. I mean, having worked as senior staff and assistant to the president, I respect the Oval Office enormously. But Biden continues, he and Harris and all his people, Janet Yellen, who should know better, should know better this myth that the Trump tax cuts only help the wealthy and the big companies and the wealthy don't pay their fair share. All lies. You have to call them what they are. You've had fact checkers in the newspapers. You've had Democratic economists like Larry Summers and Jason Furman warning about inflation. But they persist. So I'll call them what they are. The fact is the Trump tax cuts should be made permanent with the lowest unemployment in 50 years created by those tax cuts, with the best job gains coming from blacks, Hispanics, Asians, women, with real wages for typical families increasing by four or $5,000 in just a year or two after the tax cuts were passed, a larger number than the combined increase of the prior 16, 17 years. We ought to make them permanent, get this economy rolling again without inflation. Lower taxes, by the way, corporate taxes, you cut corporate taxes, the biggest beneficiary of blue-collar middle-class workers, I've said it a million times. We ran out in a campaign. Myself, Kevin Asset, Steve Mnuchin. Donald Trump, it was our watch war. Gary Cohn. I mean, it came true. And the tax cuts paid for themselves within a couple of years. Sure, you lost revenues in a static way when you first put them in. But then as tax avoidance goes down and the economy goes up and more people are working and earning taxable income, guess what? It paid for itself, $1.5 trillion. Make them permanent. Make them permanent. We'll talk about that with Newt. Newt wants to balance the budget. He's exactly right. Cut spending and taxing and grow the economy, and you can get a balanced budget in five to ten years. The border, the economy, the COVID, the foreign policy, And the defeats to his agenda, thankfully. This past week, the attempt to end the legislative filibuster was defeated by Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. Cinema speaking on the floor of the Senate on Thursday while Biden was driving up to the Hill to make his pitch to his Democrats. She one-upped him and said no, which has been her position all along. Joe Manchin followed suit with a written statement. By ending attempts to, fa- to, to modify or end the legislative filibuster, that's 60 votes, that means this crazy bill to nationalize 
elections override state legislatures. Let non-citizens vote. Anybody can have mail-in ballot. No IDs, no voter IDs. They killed it. They killed it. This is mighty good. The Supreme Court killed the vaccine mandate for private businesses that would have covered 80 million people. And I notice already private companies are starting to regroup on this and bring people back. That was killed. Schumer says we're going to vote again. He's going to vote again on this next week or something because there's COVID and there's winter storms. He can vote all times he wants. He's uh, being dominated by AOC, the left-wing socialist who might run against him for the Senate. Schumer has been completely overshadowed and dominated by her. His stratagems, I mean, he's voted or canceled vote. You know, Nancy Pelosi is smarter than Schumer. At least she is legislatively. I don't agree with Ms. Pelosi on issues, but I'm just saying she's smarter than Schumer. Schumer can keep voting until his head turns off, but the fact is not going to pass. The filibuster will not be overturned. Build back better. Big government socialism will not pass. Save America. Kill the bill. There will be no major tax hikes and there will be no major spending programs, period. Full stop. But here's the thing. With his agenda in ruins, with his foreign policy in ruins, his presidency, his presidency may have already failed, but if not, it's hanging by a thread. That's the key point. And he refuses to change, which is really mystifying to me. Uh, I worked in a White House run by President Trump. You know, you may like Trump or not like Trump. I think Trump's policy achievements are undeniable. But he was a businessman who wanted results. And if he didn't get results, he would fire cabinet officers or fire senior presidential assistance until he got the right people to implement his policies. Now with Biden, whose presidency is in a state of failure, it seems, and we're about a year into it, he will not fire anybody. Now, some people have suggested he just may not be aware of the failures around him with respect to the country and its disapproval. I don't know. I kind of don't believe that. I think it has more to do with this irrevocable shift to the far left. And he has surrounded himself with far left staff people, senior staff, you know, the big jobs. Chief of staff, National Security Advisor, National Economic Council, that was my old job. You know, after the Afghanistan catastrophe, for sure we all thought, for sure we all thought heads would roll in the National Security Cabinet. The Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, Joint Chiefs, and nobody was replaced. Remarkable. Now, as his domestic agenda falls apart, 
the chief of staff, the NEC uh, director, the Treasury secretary, no heads are rolling, despite the fact that it is an unmitigated failure. That's a very bad sign of incompetence, a tin air politically, a tin air politically. I don't get it. Go back 25 years, just for the heck of it. Bill Clinton, who really was a much better politician than Joe Biden will ever be, whatever you think of Clinton, I, I, I think a second term is a pretty good term, but leaving that history alone. Bill Clinton's wife, Hillary, tried to nationalize health care in 1993 and 1994, and Congress rejected it. It was, a, it was just a fiasco. Then Clinton went and raised the income tax, and the economy slumped. And then he got whooped, utterly whooped in the 1994 midterm elections. Both houses of Congress went Republican. My friend Newt Gingrich led the charge with the contract with America. First House takeover by the GOP in 40 years. And then Clinton appears in front of Congress at the State of the Union in 95, and says the era of big government is over. Okay, he actually listened to the voters. And as a Southern Democrat former governor, he understood, and he moved to the right, to the center, which is to the right, and changed his chief of staff, and changed his budget director, and made numerous changes. And it worked. In the second term, he and Gingrich helped balance the budget. He and Gingrich put together the best uh, welfare reform bill probably ever. He and Gingrich cut taxes. The economy boomed. The budget moved into surplus. Clinton won the 1996 race against Bob Dole and Jack Kemp. See, this is the stuff I think about, but Biden is not Clinton, at least not so far. We'll see if there's a change. I believe March 4th will be his uh, State of the Union address, which, by the way, is very late. Usually that stuff comes in late January. Nothing's going to change by March 4th. Nothing's going to change. Joe Manchin and the American people, first of all, do not want big spending inflation. They do not want the federal government to run the entire economy through overextended and overzealous regulation of banking or energy or health care. This is not a socialist state. They do not want they do not want energy dependence on Russia or for that matter Saudis or OPEC. They do not want that. They do not want to give welfare and entitlements to middle-class families without any work requirements. They do not want the government in Washington to replace parenting, whether it's in the schools or elsewhere. 
They do not want government to replace families in child rearing or helping grandparents. They do not want high taxes. They do not want to decimate businesses. They do not want to pay people not to work. And they do not want America weak around the world. They want America first. They want entrepreneurship. They want lower spending and lower taxing. They do not want a surge of immigration, of illegal immigration. They do want legal immigrants. They do not want a nationalized health care system. They do not want mandates. They do not want the teachers' unions either not to teach and go on illegal strikes or, worse, perhaps, to teach critical race theory woke garbage in the schools that emphasizes divisions among little kids or guilt if you have white skin. That is not what this country wants. Joe Biden is pushing an agenda that America rejects. And I'm sorry about that because I'm an optimist. This will not stand. The cavalry is coming. Biden's going to take a whooping at the elections this coming November. Right now, we just have to get through this period. Save America. Kill the bills. Kill all the bills. And then let's start over again because this country is so great. We will recover. Trust me, we will recover. Things may look darkest before they turn completely black for Joe Biden and his presidency. But things will always be brightest for America and our freedom and our democracy and our free market economy and our world strength. You know why? Because Americans are smart. And our traditions are strong and our history is strong. We'll get right to it. Quick break. I've got Newt Gingrich on the other side. Newt has a wonderful essay out about why we should return to civility and start dealing with real long-term problems that are pressing on the country. He's going to be with us for a while. I can't wait. We've got a couple of ads to get through. I'm Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. You can live stream us at wabcradio.com, and we'll be right back. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's The Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Let me read to you the opening from a fabulous new essay by my friend Newt Gingrich. If America is going to remain free, safe, and prosperous, we will have to elevate our national debate far above the current pattern of dishonest partisan political theater. Terrific stuff. Newt Gingrich is former Speaker of the House. He's a best-selling author. He's a Fox News contributor. His latest book is Beyond Biden, Rebuilding the America We Love. Uh, Newt Gingrich, first of all, Happy New Year. Second of all, this is a fabulous essay, and I thank you for making time for us today. Uh, welcome back, sir. Well, listen, it's great to be back, and we, we should be honest with our uh, listeners and point out that you and I go back to the mid-'80s, and <laughs> I regard you as a great personal friend, so 
when I got your email yesterday, I automatically said, of course, I'm, I'm always honored uh, to have a chance to be on your show. <laughs> You're wonderful. You're wonderful. And uh, best regards to Ambassador Callista. Um, I, I sort of think of this as somehow regaining civility and doing so without all these, as you say, vicious, personal, negative attacks. And we have stuff to do. That's the important thing. We have stuff to do, important stuff, to make America great again and and get out of this uh, uh, business that uh, Biden has stuck us into. So let's go through some of your your key points. Your, Your very first point is about communist China, the greatest foreign threat to American survival since the British Empire in 1776. Take us from there. Well, I, th- I think we have to recognize, and I just picked up again this morning, another uh, news report of a uh, scientist who had been paid by the Chinese to sell secrets. Mm. Uh, it is astonishing the depth of the Chinese effort. Uh, I just finished uh, John Moody's uh, remarkable novel, of, of Course They Did It, which is important not because it, it talks about Wuhan and, and the Chinese virus so much as it is uh, that it, it's, it really takes you inside the mind of the dictatorship. Uh, these are folks who, and, and let's emphasize, this is legitimate. This is a 5,000-year-old civilization. It uh, has been until recently the largest population in the world. India may be about to pass them. Uh, but they have this sense that there was a 200-year break when the West was dominant, and now they're getting back to what they think of as normalcy. And normalcy is they're the middle kingdom. The rest of us are barbarians. And our job is to go there and, and pay them tribute. And they're very determined about it. Uh, the truth is they have better schools than we do. Uh, they're producing far more engineers than we are. Uh, they, they're, they're, and then they steal what they haven't, what they can't invent, they steal. So the, the net effect is a momentum that's very formidable. And we should be having bipartisan hearings. And, you know, I, I'm sure you must feel the same way, Larry, that on both sides of the aisle, I am, I'm just sort of very tired of people who are so involved in partisanship and so involved in fighting that they don't. You know, if we're going to really put America first, maybe it starts with congressional hearings where we challenge both Democrats and Republicans to put America first mm. and to mm. think about America. Um, and, and one of the places, if, if you list... And everything that we have to do to compete with China, it's very formidable. And, and nobody should kid themselves. Uh, this is going to be much more, much more difficult than World War II, much more difficult than the Soviet Union. Uh, and we're just totally unprepared for it. And some of your other headings here go to this. First of all, our K-12 school system is an abject failure. I mean, you know, just as an aside note, this business about teachers' unions going on strike after all the money we've given them, using every excuse, whether it's COVID or not, and then the, the crap they teach, you know, this new wave of critical race theory, and if your you know, skin color is white, you're a bad human being, uh, you know, little young kids in classrooms being divided along racial uh, lines. I mean, what they teach them is bad. They don't want to teach? Boy. They're they're deliberately dumbing down math. I mean, what's happened is, instead of recognizing, which which all of us ought to be part of, 
that if you have a neighborhood where, where the children aren't being adequately prepared, we may need to go to some kind of tutoring program. We may need to do a lot of things, but the goal should be to get the students up to world-class performance, not to reduce the standards to the level of a community that uh, currently is not prepared to compete in the modern world. And uh, we, we have followed exactly the wrong model. Mm. And you, know, you have serious proposals from places like the state of Oregon basically to eliminate math. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And what, what makes it what makes it doubly ironic is I have a, a poster. You remember, Cliff and I did a, a remarkable movie called Nine Days That Changed the World." Yes, yes. About uh, Saint John Paul II going back to to Poland in '79 and beginning the end of the Soviet Empire. Well, in in my office, I have a poster given to me by Solidarity, the union that, that really helped break the Soviet Union, and the poster, which was an original from 1981, says in Polish, for Poland to remain Poland, two plus two must always equal four. Mm. And what they're saying is they're rejecting the relativism of the Soviet dictatorship and the ability of the state to tell you what, you know, what the state wants you to believe. Um, And I think that we're right now in a situation where the teachers union and the left-wing academics have combined to basically say, let's change all the rules so that nobody ever feels bad. Well, the fact is, if you don't have standards and if you don't teach to the standards and if you don't help the students get to the standards, you're not going to compete. I mean, we literally will lose to the Chinese just on the education front mm. if we don't solve it. And you're at the related point here. In sourcing, we need incentives. We need low tax incentives, low regulatory incentives. We need a better education system uh, so that vital manufacturing should not rely on China for pharmaceuticals or solar power or computer chips and other products. You know, that go, it all goes part and parcel. It, one of the things I love about this essay is it really hangs together. And if you see China as the threat that they are, uh, you know you have to get, you know, you have to get these things done. Schooling has to get done. Uh, teaching has to get done insourcing, lower regulating, lower taxing. In fact, I'm going to make a pitch to you, Newt, as you elaborate on this in the in the days, weeks, and months ahead. I really think we should make the Trump tax cuts permanent. And oh, I had our, our friend Rasmussen, as a good pollster, 57 to 25 people want to make the Trump tax cuts permanent because they worked. And they did, you know, incentivize insourcing. Uh, and, of course, the regulatory reduction goes along with that. That's, no, that's exactly right. And I think if we, if you just start, you know, Eisenhower, in the middle of his career, ended up spending a year looking at what it would take to mobilize for a global war. And at the time, it seemed nutty to a lot of people because it was in the, in the early stages of the Great Depression. But he understood that in the long run, if you ended up in a fight with Germany and Japan simultaneously – you would have to surge on a grand scale. Well, we would have a tough-minded analysis of what are the things without which we cannot function. And then we should say, all right, what, what are the incentives, what are the regulatory changes, whatever it takes for us to be able to produce all of that in the U.S. so that we don't end up as we did. I mean, it was absurd. You know, you're buying Chinese masks to protect you from a Chinese virus, mm, mm. And you're supposed to be grateful. Mm. 
But that's but that's because we as a country have not been taking seriously the fact that the world has changed. We we for a, for a period of time we were so big and so dominant that we could afford to be pretty sloppy. Well, that era that era is over, and I agree with you entirely. And, and I have a section in there on balancing the budget, which you will remember we did for four straight years. Yes. We did it by cutting taxes, not raising them. We did it by pruning government, and there's more than enough corruption and waste and fraud that you can go a long way towards a balanced budget with the current government just by not paying the crooks. Uh, <laughs> and we did it by real reform, such as welfare reform, which the left, for ideological reasons, the left hates work. And so they have just worked overtime to try to reverse the, the reforms we did, which were the biggest, uh, this was when I was speaker, in 96, they have their biggest conservative social reform in our lifetime. People went back to work. Children came out of poverty. Uh, it was a dramatically better world. Uh, and we, we changed the employment, the, the welfare office from a, an, a dependency office to a, to a find work office. And it worked everywhere. And, and uh, for some reason, the left just hates the idea that, that work is important and work is noble and everybody should work. I don't I've never understood it. You know, what you say is correct. Um, this is one of Manchin's best things. Newt. You know, the guy has really campaigned for work requirements to restore uh, the Gingrich Clinton reforms. Um, and he's right. He's dead right. I mean, actually, I got to tell you, Trump was very keen on this, too. It was one of Trump's best things. Uh, Donald Trump wanted to spend too much money, and Mick Mulvaney and Russell Vogt and I tried to stop that. But he was a stickler for work requirements, work fair, whether it was welfare or, you know, nutrition, food stamps, and so forth. Here's the left. I don't... The dignity of work is is an all-embracing American ideal. But the dignity of work, it not only goes to work and productivity and, and, and a stronger economy, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the heart of the family and the heart of climbing the ladder of opportunity. There's no opportunity in welfare. I mean, you'll remember, because you worked in the Reagan White House, that Reagan would routinely say that yes. the best social program is a job. Mm. <laughs> and, and and it's important in part because you want the kids to grow up seeing their parents go to work. You want them to assume that that's a necessary, that's a rational part of life, uh, and that it's fine. Everybody has to work. Now, you know. So, no, I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't interrupt. I just was just thinking out loud. And it, the the concept of a balanced budget, which would include spending restraint tax cuts to grow the economy, regulatory reduction to grow the economy, right? If you grow the economy, you're creating jobs, you're creating incomes, and people pay taxes at the higher incomes because of the opportunities. You are getting at the Chinese problem. I think we should bring back into the Republican, conservative, but as you say, it could be, it could be bipartisan, the idea of a balanced budget. It encompasses, sure. right? It's spending, it's taxing, it's regulating. It's all of a piece. Yeah, and I, and I think the thematic I was trying to work on, and I'll, I'll, I'll do it in future newsletters as well, is if we ought to talk about what does America need, and we ought to challenge Senate and House Democrats and Republicans to drop a lot of this petty crap. I mean, this, this whole, the, the kind of viciousness that we're seeing mm. out of the uh, January 6th committee 
where you you have a deliberate effort, I think, to bankrupt uh, lower level employees by by forcing them to hire lawyers and forcing them to protect themselves to no public good in the long run, none. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, compare that with an equally publicized committee that simply set the standard. I mean, we had, we had to start with what will it take to overmatch China? And if we're not doing that, then we have to recognize we are running the risk of losing our country. And you have a great line in here regarding this uh, nexus of the balanced budget with all that goes with it. It will lower inflation, lower interest rates, and and I, I love this note, rebuild our capacity to renew the world's reserve currency. And that gives us leverage over China because the Chinese want to dump the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Well, of course. And as you know, this is this is pretty sophisticated stuff, like, although your audience is a very sophisticated audience. But for the average American, they don't realize that if, if you are the key currency on the entire planet, I mean, one of the things you can say to Putin, for example, is we will break your economy. And in fact, in, in 1956, when England and France and Israel attacked uh Egypt to restore the, the Suez Canal, which Nasser had closed, Eisenhower's response was economic. He just called and said, if you don't back out of that, I'm going to break your currency. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't, they couldn't afford to do that. Well, we want to have that capability. Plus, there's a huge net advantage to us as a trading partner. If, we have, if, we're, all, well, if we're all trading in dollars, that means that we set the standard for the planet. And that has been an enormous hidden advantage uh, since World War II that we sort of just take for granted. But now we're in a different world. I I think that the key thing for me is we are in a different world, and we need hearings that explore that different world. You know, when you learn that there are 19 intelligence committees or intelligence uh, offices, you know, that can't make sense. It's not possible. Uh, but that's going to require very serious deep hearings. I was very struck if you go back and you look at the New Deal era, <clears throat> whether you liked or disliked what Roosevelt did. The Congress back then held really in-depth hearings, for example, on the way in which the utility companies had built a whole series of, of front companies that collapsed. Hmm. Well, they didn't just go in and offer legislation you know, off the cuff. They had an enormous amount of hearings. They brought in people. They had them testify. Uh, and, and it was a different approach than we've had. In the 20s, the Congress really was the driving force behind building the Air Force and building naval aviation because they had hearings. They set up a commission. They listened to the commission. Uh, they were much bolder than the mili- uniform military would have been. Uh, but that requires a Congress that actually stops and thinks, doesn't just run around making partisan points and, and attacking each other. Yeah, there's um, something to be said for a return to regular order. Absolutely. And and we have cheated. This whole notion of centralizing power in the handful of leaders cheats the country of the legitimate legislative process. And that legislative process is designed to allow 535 elected people to actually learn, to, to pull together ideas, to shape the ideas. I mean, when when we pass welfare reform, we were really fortunate because we had 
uh, Governor Thompson in Wisconsin and Governor England in Michigan and Governor Allen in Virginia. And we could call on them and they could send us their people. And so we had folks who had actually done welfare reform. But that that was a two year project, just that one thing. And you 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 know, and you don't have any capacity right now for any of these committees to do serious substantive work. It's a very grave problem. Let's uh, wind up. A couple of other big points here: uh, the expansion of pervasive discrimination. Being white is a liability. Being a white male is a guarantee of discriminatory treatment. I mean that that stuff. That stuff is crazy, what this has gone into. Absolutely crazy. That's right. And I think those of us who who understand it's crazy have an obligation to to describe it very accurately and very graphically. And these are not small things. I mean, the the number of people now, for example, who are being told in Hollywood, well, we can't really hire you because you're a white male. Mm. Well, that, that is absolute total discrimination. That's, that's something I thought we spent the last 50 years fighting against. And it certainly violates Reverend Martin Luther King's injunction that it's the content of our character, not the color of our skin. We, one, said, we don't care what your character is. Tell us your skin color. A wonderful essay. New, big government socialism, your phrase. I'm still optimistic we will beat it. Thank you ever so much for your time, Newt Gingrich. God bless. Happy New Year. You, you take care. Bye-bye. Folks, we'll take a quick break, and on the other side of the break, we're going to have to take a look at what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine. I'm Larry Kudlow. Newt Gingrich is such a great national resource. We'll be right back with much more. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to The Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, during the week, you can join us uh, every day, 4 to 5 p.m., Fox Business Channel, Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. That show's worked out pretty darn well, too, gratefully. Anyway, uh, our next guest, Congressman Lee Zeldin, who is a candidate for governor of the state of New York, Army Reserve Colonel. He himself has served. Uh, Lee Zeldin, thank you for coming on. Happy New Year to you, sir. Happy New Year. It's great to be with you. Yep. Lee, I want to talk about some New York politics in a moment, but I I know you follow the foreign policy debates uh, very, very closely. You've been a great supporter of Israel down through the years, but I know you have an overview. Uh, The Sabres are rattling with respect to Russia, Putin, and the Ukraine and um, we'll be talking about this a little bit in, more in the show as time goes on. But we had a, a week of negotiations between uh, Russia and the U.S. and NATO and various security groups. And nothing has happened, Lee, as I'm sure you are aware. Nothing has happened. The troops are still there. Uh, now there's talk that Russia is... Um, going to plant a false flag uprising in Ukraine, you know, and then bring in the equipment, the heavy equipment and the and the troops uh, and at least take over the eastern part of Ukraine, whether it's Donbass or other places. Um, what are we doing about this? What is Biden doing about this? So far, I see nothing. I don't see sanctions. I see talk. People are saying, what's he going to give up in order to stop the Russians from invading the Ukraine? It seems like we're negotiating from weakness here. 
Oh, 100% negotiating from weakness. And I serve on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, I've been involved following this issue for many years. When I first came into office, uh, that was the end of the Barack Obama presidency. And now we were denying any lethal aid support to Ukraine. The alliance uh, was filled with uh, issues that were avoidable. They were fixable. President Trump comes in for four years, provides uh, the lethal aid. We're confronting this aggression. And we're you know, taking a step back. It's important to approach these issues from a position of strength. Uh, understand our adversaries don't respect weakness. They only respect strength. Be strong and consistent. We can't be silent, not because we want war, but because we want to prevent it. Uh, but unfortunately, what happens now, fast forward to today and to the latest, as you're asking about this last week, is that President Biden and his administration don't seem to have the courage to talk about being bold, planning to be bold, to follow through. I don't think the president has the ability to actually deliver in being bold and strong and consistent in a way that the Russians would respect. Uh, so we, you know, they fast-tracked Nord Stream 2. People ask me, what are the top uh, issues, challenges, uh, threats facing the United States? I say, right now it's the, the CCP, it's our debt, it's Russia and probably in that order, uh, if you ask me today. So uh, it's a totally different approach than what we need, and it's one that is actually going to cause a bigger issue for us to have to face later, and we should be uh, enacting the sanctions, the pressure, uh, bringing, up, uh, bringing together the multinational coalition, uh, being strong, being consistent, being respected, being exceptional unapologetically, and all of these things, unfortunately, we are not doing. Unfortunately, it seems to me, a lot of this Putin-Ukraine aggressiveness, and, and I would toss in on the other side of the world, the Chinese aggressiveness towards Taiwan, a lot of this, Lee Zeldin, stems from the catastrophic consequences of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Oh, bingo. That, that was the biggest thing. People uh, you know, were assessing, what does it mean for us? long-term, what happened in Afghanistan, it's that all these other adversaries were watching us do it. China thinking about going to Taiwan, Russia thinking about going into Ukraine. No coincidence that last August, in the middle of the withdrawal, we're reading about North Korea ramping up missile tests. No coincidence that we're reading uh, news reports about uh, uh, Iran ramping up uranium enrichment. And it's not just foreign nations that are adversaries. It's also the bad actors. It's Hamas, Hezbollah, al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, and others. And my biggest fear, as I was witnessing what was playing, uh, playing out in Afghanistan, is that not just one of these other aggressors choose to push forward, sensing this vulnerability at the highest level of our government, but that multiple fronts would get opened, and we clearly are not up to that task inside the White House. Yes, sir. Now, let's turn to some New York State stuff. Um, I guess my, my first question is, if you are elected governor, and, and by the by, you've got an awfully good shot at it, thankfully, if you are elected governor, can you, will you fire this guy, Alvin Bragg, the New York district attorney who believes in no bail and no jail? Can you just fire him? As governor, I can and I would remove the Manhattan district attorney, Alvin Bragg. It is written into the New York state constitution, giving the power to the governor of the state of New York to remove a district attorney. This district attorney took an oath to enforce the law, has put out 
a memo wholesale across the board, all sorts of crimes refusing to enforce other crimes being downgraded. If he's going to be refusing to enforce the law like this, the governor absolutely needs to exercise that constitutional power and remove this district attorney. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I I knew you'd say it, but I think it's so important. I I think, Lee, this is a New York issue, but it's a national issue. You've got all these, you know, George Soros elected district attorneys throughout the country. You know, no bail, no jail. Okay, it's crazy. Uh, It's uh, the GOP should make this a big national issue. And, if you know, you, you should elevate this guy, Bragg. If he's not already famous, you should make him famous because you would fire him. Cashel's bail needs to be repealed in the state of New York. But as you point out, this isn't just a New York issue. And we've read about the $1,000 bail set in, in Wisconsin after all of these people were killed by that driver. We, we were just reading about, over the course of this last week, a guy in Baltimore who – burned down his ex-girlfriend's home and was charged with all different kinds of crimes, including three counts of attempted murder. He was let out on the street so quickly that he recorded a video where he was shocked, arguing against his own release. Uh, Now, President Biden's agenda when he was running for president, one of the planks was cashless bail nationally. That's written into the document that was being pushed out by his campaign. So while you might be tuning into listening to a conversation from a thousand miles away, as you you and I talk about what is happening uh, right now inside of Manhattan or inside of New York State, this is an agenda that one party rule in Washington also could potentially jam through as they're pushing to change the filibuster. This isn't just about one piece of legislation about the voting laws. And um, we were talking about this on my Fox Business show uh, last night with Pam Bondi, uh, former attorney general of Florida. I'm sure you know Pam. But there's a 55% increase in carjackings in New York City. I'm sure you've seen that number, but it's a remarkable number. And Pam Bondi, Lee, Pam Bondi noted, you know, as a former AG herself, that's not just means your car was stolen. That means... You were in the car, and they went after you and threw you out of the car, maybe at gunpoint, and then took the car away. 55% increase in carjackings. It's a remarkable number. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the Manhattan DA's planks resulted in somebody who uh, committed a robbery recently and threatened to uh, stab his target with a knife And the case ended up getting handled as a petty larceny. So these people who are roaming the streets of New York City, they feel like the streets belong to the criminals. These criminals believe that the streets don't belong to cops. They don't belong to to prosecutors and judges. They don't belong to law-abiding citizens. The handcuffs are getting slapped onto the, the cops, the ones responsible for enforcing the law, last year, we, uh, in 2020, actually, you had to defund the police movement, resulted in $1 billion taken away from the NYPD. New York State just announced six uh, prisons getting closed upstate based on uh, political calculation, not based on whether or not people are committing offenses. Governor Hochul signed a bill called Less Is More, releasing people early who belong behind bars. When she did that, 
She released 191 people from Rikers Island within two weeks. A whole bunch of them were immediately rearrested. Uh, this all adds up. You have to go after the small offenses, the large offenses, honor and follow, respect the rule of law, back our men and women in blue, uh, and make sure that the streets belong to law-abiding citizens. Or You know what? A whole lot of people from across America aren't going to want to come to New York, and a whole bunch who live, people who live in New York are going to want to get out permanently. Well, that's the thing. That, sort of my next point. Besides uh, crime and public safety and security and so forth, New York State is you know, going downhill. We're losing to Florida, the so-called free state of Florida. Uh, we, we're going to need the tax cuts. We're going to need regulatory cuts. We're going to need a pro-business environment. I mean, we're going to lose our financial industry supremacy. There's no reason why that can't be moved to Miami, which is in some sense already the banking center for all of Latin America. Uh, technology companies are moving to uh, Florida. I mean, the Florida model is a good one. The New York State model is a bad one. Uh, the next governor is going to have to turn this around. Otherwise, it'll be a hopeless cause. New York will just keep sliding down New York, uh, sliding downhill. Yes, yes, yes. It's last stand time. Uh, and you're pointing out some of the solutions. The solutions are actually not that complicated. But the cost of living, tapping into our own natural resources that can create more jobs and it can uh, allow us to reduce taxes, improving the business climate, the people who run the state agencies, and improving the quality of education in our schools where parents are being told if they want to be that involved in their kid's education, well, then they should just homeschool their kid. You know what? They want their kid to be able to go to school. If they, want, if they can homeschool their kid, if they want to, that's fine. But whether it's inside of uh, our schools and our kids' education, it's the attack on the wallet, the attack on safety, the attack on freedom, these all add up to people hitting their breaking point, and they are gone. It is last stand time right now in the state of New York, leading the country in population loss, a higher percentage than even California in people who are taken off. It is not hard to turn around, but one-party rule in D.C., in Albany, in New York City, it all adds up to bad, destructive policy. We want balance. We want common sense. And as you point out, and, and I'm echoing, the solutions are not that complicated to turn this around, but it's not going to happen with the status quo of the people who are there right now pandering to the far left and the vision to radically change our state and country. So to use Newt Gingrich's term, he was just on the show, let's end big government socialism in New York. How about that? <laughs> right. Absolutely. It has to happen right away. Best of luck on the campaign trail, Lee Zeldin. Thanks very much Thank for you, visiting sir. with us. All right, take, take care. Take care. Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to bring in Andrew Peake, who's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a former senior director for European and Russian affairs at the National Security Council. Uh, I should also add, this is the second peak on this show. My um, saintly wife, Judy, calls it Twin Peaks. Ha, 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 ha. Andrew, uh, Happy New Year. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. And, and I am definitely, I'm definitely the, the second of the peaks, uh, not the first. <laughs> Judy calls it Twin Peaks. We just had dinner with your wonderful mom 
uh, who's a superstar <laughs> on her own. Anyway, uh, you and uh, my pal Rick Grinnell wrote a very good piece in the journal, uh, U.S. Mistakes, Feds, Putin, Ukraine, Temptation. Andrew, the first question to get your take on, what is what do you think Biden is going to give up? What kind of concessions is Biden likely to make uh, in order to avoid a Russian invasion of the Ukraine? That's my biggest worry. You know, we just had a week of talks. Nothing happened, right? Anthony Blinken himself said nothing's happened. So now the question is, as Russia threatens some kind of false flag operation to invade uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, what's Biden going to give up? So I think the thing they have floated is some kind of return to what looks like the INF Treaty or is uh, de facto the INF Treaty, which was uh, an agreement to move medium-range missiles uh, away from the border uh, between the, the east and the west which we in the Trump administration got out of because uh, because the Russians kept cheating. Hmm. Now, uh, what I think the Russians would like is some kind of commitment to uh, not move NATO, not move NATO further eastward and to bring uh, and to bring uh, U.S. military forces out of Ukraine. But what I think he's going to give them ultimately is some kind of wink on that subject a we are not going to do we are not going to put you know naval uh, ships into the black sea we are going to uh telegraph very clearly what's going to ukraine and i ultimately don't think that'll be enough to stop putin from from shoving his way further uh into ukraine i mean if we if we somehow whether it's a nod and a wink or or what if we allow him to be able to dictate to us what we do with the Ukraine or Georgia or any of these former Soviet satellites. In other words, if they, if we say to him, okay, we won't bring them into the European Union, we won't bring them into NATO, we won't bring them into our system of democracy and free markets. To me, uh, Andrew Peek, that would be a terrific defeat for the United States. Of course, of course, one of our greatest rivals dictating to us who can and can't be in our alliance. You know, Putin has a very good nose for weakness. Uh, I sat on uh, many calls between the former president and Vladimir Putin, and he's always probing. He's always looking for an opening where he senses that you are on weak ground. And to his credit, I, I think the former president was very good with him. Uh, was usually uh, pretty tough. And what happens is if we start to give these little concessions, whether it's on INF or on some kind of military uh, uh, exercise agreement with Ukraine, then he starts to push more. He doesn't push less. You see this article it's at this week that the Biden administration is looking at reducing our nuclear stock? I mean, I can't. Not only is that you know incredibly stupid and and potentially harmful, but it, but that kind of rumor is exactly the wrong time, as we're supposedly having tough negotiations with Putin. We're going to cut back on our nuclear weapons while they increase theirs. 
It's insane, but but it, Larry, it's not based on a strategic assessment. It's an article of theological faith for the arms control community and the kind of left wing of the national security establishment that arms control treaties are good. And one of the faith building things you can do for arms control treaty is unilaterally disarm. Mm-hmm. Now, as Rick and I pointed out in our article in the journal, this is actually precisely backwards. The Russians want arms control treaties because they don't want to have to pay to keep up their main claim to be a superpower, their strategic Mm -hmm. nuclear stockpile. So if you start unilaterally disarming, and even if you sign a treaty with them without insisting on concessions elsewhere, then you're just giving up one of your points of leverage. Mm. I'll say. Um, So you and Rick asked this other question about the European Union now. Are they helping us in this or not? I mean, I hear about sanctions. First of all, if you ask me, we should have put the sanctions on uh, right away. As soon as he started massing whatever, 100, 150,000 troops on the Ukraine border. I, I mean, I, I would have used that as our negotiating tactic. He's 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 saying, well, if you, you know, please, please don't go in there. If you do go in there, we're going to have sanctions. We should have slapped them on right away. They opposed uh, the Ted Cruz amendment, as you know, to restore the uh, Nord Stream 2 sanctions. That should never have been given up in the first place. But the question I ask you is uh, the NATO countries, the European countries, which, you know, unfortunately, Germany, which has moved so far to the left, are they helping us or are they hurting us in these negotiations? Yeah, we are unfortunately trapped in a uh, in like a Cold War redux, not with the Russians only, but with the Germans, because the new German chancellor and the, the party that's come to power in Germany, the SPD, is a very much looks to Ostpolitik of Willy Brandt uh, yeah. of the, the early 1970s, the outreach to Russia as one of the core reasons that the Cold War was won for us, was won for the good guys. Whereas I think every American, almost every American, sees it as precisely the opposite. It was the Reagan years, the Thatcher years. It was the building up of internal and external pressure that eventually led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So not only do you have a new fundamentally uh, new German government with a fundamentally different worldview, you have an administration here that has fetishized agreement with the EU because they they beat up so much on us for not having that, the, the Trump administration, that you're then willing to pay the Biden 